Archiver is made possible by a grant from the Kansas Humanities Council and is part of the Fountain City Frequency family of podcasts. So if I were to tell you about a millionaire running for high political office that found his fame in the media and money in somewhat sketchy endeavors, a man who worked outside of the regular political channels, and who seemed to constantly be battling the establishment, you would probably say, sure, I know who that is, Donald Trump. But long before Trump, or Ross Perot, or Michael Bloomberg, for that matter, there was this man. Uh, Thank you, Don, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. As I come to you again, calling your attention to the serious situation in my beloved nation, I trust that the news reports and news items appearing in our daily papers during the past few weeks have aroused you to the seriousness of our situation and that Dr. Brinkley had means of securing advance information of the subversive forces in this nation that are at work to murder your son and mine. That is Dr. John R. Brinkley in a 1930s radio broadcast. The R is for Romulus, Although by the time Doc Brinkley moved to Kansas in 1916, he changed his middle name to Richard. Nobody knows why, except that Doc had mightily transformed himself when he settled in tiny Milford, Kansas, about 20 miles west of Manhattan and just north of Fort Riley. From Milford, Doc Brinkley would create a medical empire on questionable patent medicines and, of all things, goat glands. He would battle everyone from the American Medical Association to William Rockhill Nelson and William Allen White, both powerful editors at the time. And Doc, and that's what everyone called him, would perhaps have the most colorful political career of anyone in Kansas. The podcast is Archiver, the episode, Goat Glands, Radio Waves, and the Governorship. Me, I'm your host, Sam Zeff. I'm not sacrilegious, but I want you to know that this country is teeming with disloyal aliens who have it in their hearts to overcome and destroy freedom, Christianity, civilization, and everything of value to an intelligent, wholesome human being. Well, we're at the Kansas State Historical Society. I'm here with uh, Virgil Dean, my favorite uh, Kansas historian. Uh, and we're going to be starting uh, going through uh, all of the uh, audio and uh, whatever uh, documents we need uh, on our uh, new podcast series. So, you've seen this photo before. Yeah, that's him as a boy. What's it mean to you? It's, you know, it's interesting because the, there's conflicting stories about his background. One story is that his father was a country doctor. He didn't look poor. Didn't look real poor, but then there's other st- accounts that he, you know, grew up in poverty, uh, raised by an aunt because he was orphaned young. So it's probably a mix of both, but I don't, you know, there he looks like any other kid during the late 19th century. Virgil will be back with me in a little bit, but first let's cover Doc's early life before he got to Kansas and opened his clinic, resort, goat farm, and radio station in Milford. Doc was born in 1885 in North Carolina to a country doctor, but he was orphaned by age 10 and raised by an aunt. Not surprisingly, he bounces between just shady and criminal behavior. 
He and a partner open a storefront medical clinic in North Carolina where he racks up debts he does not pay. He's charged with practicing medicine without a license, and he has a failed marriage. Finally, he finds himself at the Eclectic Medical College in Kansas City, Kansas. I know, it sounds weird, and it sort of is and sort of isn't. Eclectic med schools were private, popped up mostly in the Midwest, and taught the use of botanical remedies, an extension of herbal medicine. This training seems to play into exactly the kind of medicine Doc Brinkley practiced, out on the edge to be sure, but with some basis in science. Doc doesn't graduate from Eclectic, but this is 1916, and it really doesn't take much to become a doctor. Brinkley, who's married by this time to his second wife, Minnie, sets up shop in Milford and starts to spread the good word about goat glands. If you've ever been to a state fair, you might have noticed the size of the gonads on some goats. Doc figured if you transplanted those into men, virility would go through the roof. Not everyone agreed, of course, but he certainly had a following. So Brinkley did have some medical skills. Right after he moves to Milford, the flu epidemic of 1918 hits, and he's given credit for taking pretty good care of the locals who get hit. But let's be clear. Doc Brinkley is part Henry Hill from The Music Man, part Elmer Gantry, and a little bit Dr. Oz. So Brinkley really takes off after a 1922 trip to California to do some goat gland surgery, a trip promoted by the powerful publisher of the L.A. Times, Harry Chandler. Brinkley is already a bit infamous in the medical world, but Chandler pulls some strings and lands Brinkley a 30-day license to practice in California. People seem to think the transplanted goat glands are doing the sexual trick, and the Times promotes Doc's business. And it's while in L.A. that Doc tours KHJ, the Chandler radio station. It's at that point that Doc apparently puts the whole scheme together in his head. Medical advice broadcast over a radio station that will drive people to pharmacies to buy Doc's remedies and lure them to rural Kansas for a goat gland transplant that in current dollars would set you back about 10 grand and, by the way, would clearly not be covered by insurance. By 1930, Doc Brinkley is rich and famous. His radio station, KFKB, most believe it stands for Kansas First, Kansas Best, is heard over a wide swath of the country. He owns a yacht and a plane, but he's also paid for a new sewage system and sidewalks in Milford. He installed electricity, built a bandstand, as well as a new post office, mostly to handle all of his mail. And he sponsored the local baseball team called the Brinkley Goats. But he's also made some powerful enemies. The American Medical Association is after him. So is the Kansas City Star and Emporia Gazette, both had national influence at the time, and state regulators were interested in Doc's operation. So with opponents closing in from all sides, Doc Brinkley makes a huge decision. He decides he's not going to flee, but he's going to run. I want to bring Virgil Dean back in now. So he's running for governor uh, because he wants to save 
the medical practice. Uh, but while he's out on the campaign trail, he says some good things, doesn't he? 1930 is a really difficult year for the country. It's a year after the crash. The Depression is setting in. Mm-hmm. You know, the ability of opposition candidates to tap into that discontent uh, is very real in Kansas and across the nation. Brinkley and a number of other probably better-known nationally figures are starting by 1930 and certainly 32 to start uh, voicing up a populist message that would be calling for some kinds of uh, very important relief measures. The most notable, I think, that Brinkley's talking about in the 30 is old age pensions. Uh, he starts talking about certain things for, with regard to education uh, and uh, free school books. Free school books is either 30 or 32, mm-hmm. but he certainly brings it up early. Um, it seems to me like, I don't know if it's in his platform, but he talks about a farm pond and on every farm uh, because of the drought situation that's developing. I mean, eventually that's part of that. But by 1930 in Kansas, there's a lot of discontent, and uh, Brinkley does a good job of tapping into that. I'm wondering, and it's always hard to psychoanalyze somebody uh, from 1930 now, but how much do you think he believed in that populist message, or was it all just craven because he's trying to save the business? Just like today, it's always hard to talk motives, whether somebody is motivated more by this reason or that reason. And so I think I would have to just say, as far as I can tell, it's a combination of both. There's no way of of me of, of saying that he wasn't sincere about these, but certainly his reason for entering politics, I think, is pretty clear. I mean, he was in favor. He wanted to be governor so he could reverse his own fortunes in terms of pra- medical practice and uh, his uh, medical operation in Milford and his uh, radio radio operations. Uh, but once you get in, obviously not everybody in, in Kansas is going to be real concerned about that, but a lot of people did really like Doc Brinkley. And so uh, he was able to appeal to people with a platform that was uh, something that they could identify with and give them reason to vote for him other than the fact that they'd come to like him as a radio personality and a doctor. I believe I'm rendering a service to my country and my God by attacking an unholy thing, a dangerous and contemptible thing. I'm getting some encouragement from people far away who know that I'm right in the charges I'm making. It's a close election, much closer than it should be for a candidate who got in so late and wasn't even on the ballot. Doc gets about 30% of the vote and lost to Harry Hines Woodring, who, by the way, would become FDR's Secretary of War. Doc would run for Kansas governor two more times, losing as an independent against Alf Landon in 1932, again with about 30% of the vote, and to Landon again in 1934, this time in the Republican primary. Now, to be honest, probably nobody could have beat Landon in Kansas in those years. Not Babe Ruth, not Clark Gable, not Bing Crosby. Landon would run against FDR in 1936 and won only two states, Kansas not among them. Despite the shellacking, Alf would be cemented as a Republican elder statesman until his death in 1987. All right, I got a little off topic, but I worked for Alf in my very first full-time radio job at WREN in Topeka, and frankly, I like talking about him. But back to Doc. While Brinkley is wildly rich, he runs as a populist. It's the Depression. Parts of Kansas are plagued by the Dust Bowl. And Doc is out there campaigning for what we would now call a social safety net. This is probably good politics at the time, especially in Kansas. 
But something else happens to his politics right around this time. Oh, won't you wake up? Won't you help a little bit by sending a dollar for a six-month subscription to published in newspaper, Wichita, Kansas. In this paper each week, one of these talks of mine is published. Get the talk and read it and study it and then give it to your neighbors and try to get them to send in a dollar. And thus build up the subscription list of this little patriotic weekly newspaper, the only paper in the United States that has offered to publish these Sunday night talks of mine. You know, as we listen to his uh, broadcasts, as we get sort of deeper and deeper, Doc Brinkley becomes, uh, starts to talk about isolationism as we get closer to war in Europe. Uh, and by, uh, at least by association, he becomes close to not just isolationists, but uh, anti-Semites. There's a huge newspaper, the Wichita Defender, which is uh, anti-Roosevelt, isolationist, virulently uh, uh, anti-Semite. And so uh, how, do, how do those relationships all meld together and play out uh, for Doc Brinkley? Well, interestingly, in 1930, right after the election, Brinkley launches, essentially launches his own newspaper in Wichita to promote his interests. Uh, It's called Publicity, edited by Elmer Garner, flirted with the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s and was all over the place. So uh, his his backers, in some cases, tended to, to lean to that in that direction as the world and the country moved towards war uh, in Europe uh, that they become more and more um, interested in issues having to do with international relations. Anti-Semitism plays into that, as do isolationists. And uh, Gerald Winrod, who I don't know if anybody knows how close Winrod and Brinkley were, but they certainly were uh, uh, you know, familiar with each other. Winrod, Event- the uh, publisher and editor of yes, The Defender. Gerald Winrod, right. Reverend Gen- Gerald Winrod, who right. is the one that some people have called or did call the Jayhawk Hitler because Winrod was very, had made some trips to Germany, was uh, connected with Hitler and wow. fascists to a certain extent, at least until the war began. You can see really uh, Brinkley turning and Brinkley adopting some of those ideas, particularly the anti-Semitism, through the pages of publicity, which becomes more and more virulent in its opposition to Roosevelt. He's uh, uh, spreading that word, that message, quite a bit in his radio broadcast by the, by the end of the 30s and 40s. By the 1934 gubernatorial campaign, Brinkley is mostly out of Kansas. He's had enough. And he moves most of his operation to Del Rio, Texas, right across the Rio Grande from Mexico. But Doc is not done in medicine or radio and not nearly done in politics. How do you do, everybody? How are you? This is Mrs. John R. Brinkley of the Brinkley Hospital, Del Rio, Texas. Here's an unheard of offer. The man who writes the best letter and why I consider good health my most valuable possession this hospital will give him absolutely free Dr. Brinkley's famous prostate operation, also seven days in the hospital. This is all free, and in addition to this, hospital will pay your railroad fare down here to get the wonderful prostate work and pay your, ra- your railroad fare back home. That's Doc's wife, Minnie, on radio station XERA in Mexico in what we would now call an infomercial, 
luring people down to Del Rio. Doc did for Del Rio what he did for Milford, paved the streets, and brought business to town. Doc not only left Candace to get away from the medical establishment, but KFKB was also causing him some headaches. By moving the transmitter to Mexico, he escaped regulations, at least for a time, and at one point he had a million-watt signal that could be heard in Kansas, Canada, and some locals say, in their dentures. By comparison, the most powerful AM radio stations in America today top out at 50,000 watts. In Del Rio, Doc is selling time to other broadcasters, and he helps launch the careers of Gene Autry and the Carter family, and XCRA is generating a huge amount of income. He's still doing medical procedures, of course, but not as many goat gland operations, and his specialty is now an early version of a vasectomy at $1,000 a pop. But by late 1930s, his obsession with FDR is growing, as is his isolationist views. Here's a typical Sunday night broadcast. Last Sunday, you heard our president speak, no doubt, just as I heard him. And our president promised that he would do all that he could to keep us out of the uh, European war. As I sat listening to our president, I hoped that he would say, I promise you, I reassure you, that as long as I am president of these United States, no son of yours will ever be sent to a European country. I wish our president had said that. If I was president of these United States, I would assure and reassure and promise the fathers and mothers that as long as I was their president, they need to have no worries about sending their boys to a foreign shore because I would never, never do it. These broadcasts dominate Doc's radio appearance and do so as World War II breaks out in Europe and the isolationists in America fight any notion that the U.S. should get involved. Those views fade after Pearl Harbor, as does the whole Brinkley Empire. He mounts a run for Senate from Texas in 1941 after an incumbent dies, but it doesn't go anywhere. The American Medical Association goes after him again, as does the U.S. State Department and the IRS. He's charged with mail fraud by the post office. By 1941, after a disastrous venture in Arkansas, he goes bankrupt, has three heart attacks, and dies penniless in 1942. He was 57 years old. I'm glad we made the most of every moment. Those memories help a lot while we're apart. I don't mean to say I'm unhappy. I don't think I've got a broken heart. So there's really no John R. Brinkley legacy. Indeed, just a tragic end. The mansion in Del Rio is a historic site, but that's about it. His son, Johnny Boy, gave an interview about his father in the middle 70s for a documentary film, but he killed himself a few months later. Doc's Gokland procedure for male sexual virility is just another thing in a long line of things men do for sexual virility. But I'm left wondering if there is a legacy, whether it's a political one. It's hard to know how much Doc's politics were simply aimed at protecting a million-dollar business. Did Milford Candace make him a populist, or was populism just a craven attempt at high political office? Was he truly an isolationist with an anti-Semitic bent, or did he think that's what his huge radio audience wanted to hear? 
We'll never really know, but William Allen White had something to say about it. Here's what he wrote in the Emporia Gazette after White learned Doc was vying for that Texas Senate seat. This appeared in the May 15, 1941 editions. He will appeal to the hillbilly mind as it has never been lured before. He is irresistible to the moron mind, and Texas has plenty of such. Perhaps that is unfair, White continued. Very likely, Texas has no more morons than Kansas. So while pointing with pride to the fact that Kansas escaped the doctor's clutches, we view with alarm for the United States the danger which impends in Texas. And White wrapped up with this, which brings us back around to how we open the podcast. If this republic ever totters to its fall, it will be because the moron minority shall sometime, somewhere, somehow, gain a party majority by unscrupulous leadership. That's Archiver. The podcast is produced by Matt Hodap in the studios of KCUR 89.3 in Kansas City and is made possible by a grant from the Kansas Humanities Council. Thanks to Daryl Garwood and Nancy Sherbert at the Kansas State Historical Society. Archiver is a co-production of Fountain City Frequency and Do Good Productions, where Nancy Seelan is executive producer. You can see all kinds of photos of Doc Brinkley, his yacht, plane, and the goats at FountainCityFrequency.com. For my favorite Kansas historian, Virgil Dean, I'm Sam Zeff, and I'll see you on the next Archiver. Archiver.